Listening to the Radical Reverend Show, and of course, we are all quarantined in our homes these days. So you're not listening to me from CIUT 89.5 FM studios, but we are still broadcasting on CIUT 89.5 FM. So first of all, thank you for tuning in, listener land. You can also, by the way, hear us on iTunes or SoundCloud, and we'll be putting that out momentarily. Of course, what else does anybody talk about these days but the pandemic? Um, to help today look at a different, perhaps, perspective on this, uh, I have, a, first of all, a wonderful guest, Natalie Harris. She's not only a city councillor in Barrie, she's also an author, a retired paramedic, and somebody who has had a lot of experience with recovery. Uh, so Natalie, welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. Thank you, Sherry. I'm so happy to be here. So nice to see your face. <laughs> yes, and by the way, congratulations on the grandchild. Thank oh you. Oh my gosh. What a, what a cutie. Yeah. So are you getting sleep? <laughs> I'm getting sleep, totally. It's, it's, it's a pretty awesome deal being a grandma. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I aspire to that. Yes. status one of these days. Uh, yeah. Sure. So let's first of all talk about your job as city councillor that's obviously shifted so what what's going on there how are you are you still meeting what's happening uh so we stopped meeting um obviously because of the distancing that people have to do so um everything it's changing very quickly every day obviously we're getting new updates from the province from 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 the federal government from so the city's just kind of following whatever it needs to do in that respect but when we enacted our emergency plan in Barrie, uh, we stopped meeting together and we had our first Zoom meeting, how many weeks ago would that be? Probably about two weeks ago now, <clears throat> excuse me. So that was the very first time uh, Barrie City Council had ever met virtually and it went really well. Um, it, was, it was pretty fun actually, it's, it's different and, but it, it worked and we're just ironing out the glitches with, um, how are we in the future going to allow people to say make deputations and those types of things so it's it's a changing world that's for sure and now my cat is right beside me yes. so <laughs> also a huge thing right now is i have i have three pets and i obviously didn't need to deal with that at city council and now i do <laughs> <laughs> so what is the situation in Barrie? We haven't really talked much. I mean, being a downtown Torontonian, haven't really talked much about the kind of 905 region. Um, what, what's going on there? What is the hospital situation like, long-term care, all of that? Um, it's, it's, it's very well managed at this time. Again, it changes every day. So our health unit provides updates all the time as well. Um, our medical director, Dr. Gardner, is great. 
Uh, I'm just trying to think. I think Bradford Valley uh, Nursing Home had the biggest outbreak, as far as I can recall. They had quite a few people there that were diagnosed positive. Um, but it's fine. I mean, in the sense that as long as we keep doing what we're told to do and do our social distancing or personal distancing, things can be managed and maintained. Um, it's actually, from what I've heard from paramedics that are on the road right now, it's sort of eerily quiet in the emergency room. So it's a different world entirely. There's no, there's no um, visitors allowed and people are very cautious to call an ambulance and go to the hospital now. So it's, it's good. It's, ma it's being managed, um, but it's very different, very different. Yeah. Um, I, and I want to talk to you about that. You were a paramedic for many years and uh, I happened to live like a couple of blocks from a station. So I, I was wondering whether I'm hearing sirens more because I'm at home all the time now or is there just more sirens? What's it like on the road for a paramedic these days? That's a great question. So I spoke to four different paramedics in the Barry area. That was about three weeks ago. So I, I set up a Zoom meeting with MPP Andrea Kanjin because we wanted to answer that question exactly. Um, obviously, I'm not on the road anymore. So I, I connected her with medics that are right now on the road. And they were dealing with everything well. Three weeks ago, though, it was a big difference. Um, there wasn't really PPE or personal protective equipment shortages very much back then some of the concerns they had uh, were you know making sure if they needed testing would that come back in you know a rapid time obviously if it, if it came back and they needed to quarantine that would happen anyways um, but they were wondering will they be able to return to the road um, right away there was just so many questions three weeks ago so I just spoke to another paramedic this morning and he's in the Peel region area just to kind of catch up and see where things are. And he said, um, general concerns that are, are out there now um, are, you know, the, the paramedics, when they go into calls, they wear a certain level of protective equipment. So they wear the mask, the goggles, um, and gloves. And they do, they stand a certain distance away from the patient. They do a preliminary screening. And the um, dispatcher, when they call 911, also does a verbal screening. And people, his response was that people are still afraid to a certain extent to even say what their symptoms are. So it's not like an, a malicious thing, but they're, uh, they're very worried, I think, to say like, oh, yes, I have had a cough or whatever. So the paramedics are arriving on scene and the story changes. So that's a problem in the sense that, you know, the paramedics are kind of in more danger if they don't know ahead of time that they need to have like the full PPE on. But um, it's, it's understandable because people are scared, you know, people are really scared. And the PPE shortages um, were a huge concern even last week, but the government's doing a great job right now. And he said it was is quite impressive that they've gotten the masks that they need. And, you know, it's business as usual in that sense. One thing he said was that cleaning supplies were getting shorted, like shorter um, in supply. So um, that was something that came to mind. But other than that, it's just a weird sensation, he said, that the hospitals are just different. And 
the calls are different in the sense that the patients are just really afraid. There, there's a different level of anxiety. People are always afraid when they call 911 anyways, but this is, this is different. <laughs> are they, is, is it because they're afraid of a possible diagnosis or is it because they're afraid of whatever is going wrong with them? They have to walk into a hospital, oh. which are kind of scary places these days for a lot of people. Exactly. That's a great point. So, and I saw something, uh, I forget which uh, hospital it was from. And one of the doctors, you know, said on the news, it's really important for people to know that you can come to the hospital if you're sick and, and they have, you know, it's, it's, they run it like a pretty tight ship right now with being able to screen people and make sure they go to the proper areas. Um, but you're right. It's, for both of those reasons. What happens if I'm diagnosed? What does that mean? Was my family, you know, um, too close? Was, am I going to be in the hospital? And yeah, like what, it's just so, so much information is changing every day, even about what COVID-19 is and how it affects us. And it's just the unknown. It brings anxiety. Yeah. Now, testing has been a huge issue. Um, and I know the government's expressed some concern that we're just not testing up to our capacities. What does it look like where you are and what are you hearing from paramedics about that? Because um, I think part of the concern is, first of all, we probably, I just say, assume you've a carrier, you know, just right. assume it because yeah. it's a safe assumption, right? So, but for a paramedic, like that's a pretty big assumption when you're walking into calls. Like, what is the testing situation in Barrie? As far as I know, I haven't been told that there's a problem here at all. Um, if they need the test, then it's provided by the health unit and it goes through the standard procedure. I think, you know, and then they're quarantined if they're even suspected and, and waiting for the test results. Um, but yeah, three weeks ago when I was speaking to those paramedics, they just said um, it was taking a long time at that point to get the results back. So even past the quarantine time. So they really didn't know, well, when can I even go back to work? That was questionable. So that was something that MPP Andrea Kanjan was actually even working on with her government to bring that to their attention and speed that up. And the paramedic they spoke to today said that that has sped up and it is better and it's changing even days ago, improving. <laughs> so yeah, I bet. Um, and, and especially for frontline workers, are you being, you're in a sense a frontline worker in political office. And we've, we've heard these huge stories, you know, Boris Johnson and, and, you know, Trudeau's wife. And I mean, it, it's in a sense, you have been in a high risk position. Have you been tested? Have others been tested? Are healthcare workers getting tested? So as for city council, as far as I'm aware, no one at the city at all has been tested or has needed to be tested. Um, we're just practicing the distancing that the health unit recommends. Mm -hmm. So that's why we're doing all of our meetings via Zoom. Um, even when the mayor, Jeff Lehman, has meetings, like he is physically distanced from staff that he needs to be distanced from or from news reporters or what have you. And um, with respect to people in uh like frontline workers again up here i i haven't heard of a problem with it yet i think you know we're just fortunate that um knock on wood pray to god it's it's being um no it's not obviously there's still numbers are rising unfortunately but uh it's manageable yeah 
If you've just tuned in, you're listening to the Radical Reverend Show. Of course, we are taping remotely. Um, we're talking to Natalie Harris. Natalie is not only a city councillor in Barrie, but a retired paramedic, an author of more than one book now, Natalie. <laughs> and, uh, and, and also um, really somewhat of an expert, both personally and, of course, um, in a community sense in, in recovery. So that's what I wanted to talk to you about, because one of... You know, as a, as a minister in a church, in our particular church, we had 12 12-step 12 groups meeting every month. I mean, wow. phenomenal um, and proud of it. But mm -hmm. now they can't meet in person anymore. Um, the whole idea of 12 steps and recovery is getting together with other people that have the same issues and sharing your life. What, what is that looking like now? Wow, that's a great question. It's so different. So I participate in 12-step meetings usually a couple times a week via Zoom. And I also started um, a Facebook chat group where it's literally just to have a chat. Talk about the 12 steps, but it's not an official meeting. It's just for the fellowship that was gone. So there's a lot of mixed emotions from people when we're in the Zoom meeting itself again the anxiety is the general um kind of you know blanket feeling that everyone has about the unknown and what does this mean for our recovery but people are just so grateful that we have things like zoom and social media and facetime to look at the person and still feel connected in one way shape or form so amazing groups are also popping up like you know music live music groups one in Barry there's Barry's live music show and um, it, it's it's been it's been wonderful because you can still see your friends in so many different ways that you maybe never did before and I'm learning personally of different apps, like there's something called In The Rooms, and I guess that app has been around for a long time, and there's, I'm doing meetings that are in the States. Like, I've never thought that would be possible. So I did a meeting the other day, and somebody was from California. You just don't know who's going to be there. It's, it's pretty cool. Um, but everybody misses that. You know, the, the one of the biggest parts of recovery at a 12-step meeting was shaking someone's hand at the door. That was, if you were a newcomer, that was kind of your task to kind of get involved, get out of your shell, and don't be afraid about recovery and meet the people that you need to have in your life now because that's a big part of recovery is, is changing your circle sometimes of, of friends. And that's not there, that physical handshake isn't there, and people miss that. But there are so many Zoom meetings popping up right now. Like there's, like you said, there was 12 meetings in, in your church. Like there's, every day on, on my page, I'm getting sent new Zoom numbers because new meetings are popping up. There's no shortage. It's amazing what we do when we need to. And before we go further, I want to highlight some of the work, the amazing work that you've done, because you've been instrumental for first responders. And, and by the way, you know, full disclosure, Natalie and I met uh, around the PTSD issue um, and particularly PTSD for first responders. So I worked on a bill that uh, helped to make this a workplace injury back in the day. But um, but are those still going on? Talk a little bit about that because people should really hear this again, this phenomenal effort. 
Well, first of all, Sherry, that is because of you. I mean, you started this years ago, trying to advocate for first responders and one particular paramedic who's a very dear friend of mine and yours as well in Toronto. And um, that took many years to be able to look at um, any kind of like PTSD um, injury, mental injury as a workplace injury. So yeah, it was 2017 that that legislation was passed in Ontario. So now if anyone is diagnosed with PTSD, uh, it's presumed that it came from the trauma that we were exposed to on our jobs, which before legislation, oh my goodness, was just literally, I, I, I don't even know how to say, like it, it, it took lives. It really did. It, it was so stressful to get the the care and the um, the treatment and um, the financial care that people needed years, like years and years of people struggling at home, trying to recover from PTSD, losing their houses, you know, losing their mortgages, losing their families, and sometimes losing their lives. So that's how important this legislation is. And um, there's still improvements that they do all the time, but it's absolutely done a, a positive 180 since the legislation WSIB has come a long way with also learning how to work with um, first responders and be trauma informed. So um, I don't get as many, I used to get a lot of phone calls about um, complaints really about uh, interactions with people with WSIB. That is so few and far between now um and it's all because of the legislation really well thank you for that but what about your groups that you started oh. for first responders <laughs> right right um so yeah i started a group called wings of change in i guess it was before the legislation oh my gosh so much time is going by i can't I believe know. it it's really crazy. Um, I went to Homewood and for the first time in 2015. So I guess it was probably 2016 that I started Wings of Change. So when I went away to Homewood for PTSD and addiction, um, one of the classes or groups we had was uh, uniform professionals. And it was the first time I sat in a room filled with people that understood me. Like was where they were in the world of, you know, first responder or healthcare and we spoke the same language. We, we understood there was even kind of like a common knowledge that we didn't need to say certain things that were traumatic because we just got it. And that was so wonderful to me. But then when I left Homewood, there wasn't really anything like that. So I put a call out on social media and said, would anybody like to help me do this? And I had people from across Canada come together. And most importantly, um, a good friend of mine, Sid Gravel, who's a retired staff sergeant from the Ottawa Police Service, reached out to me and, and said, uh, Natalie, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. He had been giving peer support basically underground in the Ottawa Police Service for over 25 years which back then needed to be underground because of the stigma. And he had written a book called 56 Seconds. And so we've, we've used his book as a reference and it's grown. So, and I cannot take credit for how much Wings of Change has grown. So we have a dear friend, Catherine Palmerlow, who is the director now. And she, we have regional coordinators. Um, we have, it's, it's across, across Canada, from coast to coast, we have meetings now. And, and now we have online meetings because of everything that's happening with COVID. But um, it's, it's amazing how 
really people, if, if there's a need for something and we put, put it out there, things can change in a positive way. Sorry, my animals are fighting on my couch. <laughs> so, but yeah, I, I, I definitely was, um, the, I started Wings of Change, but there's so many facilitators out there that have made it flourish to what it is right now. Talking uh, to Natalie Harris, city councilor in Barrie, retired paramedic author, and uh, also uh, someone with a lot of experience in recovery, as you've just heard here on the Radical Reverend Show. By the way, just want to do another shout out and say you can hear this show uh, on iTunes and on SoundCloud, as well as a week Monday uh, on CIUT 89.5 FM from 4 to 5 p.m. Uh, so, uh, Natalie, I just want to tell you a story too. I was asked to be uh, a speaker at a dinner and also at the ceremony for the first ever this year. I'm hoping it will still happen in some way, mm -hmm. shape or form in June for the Toronto Police Services. They've always had a memorial at Queen's mm -hmm. Park for those who died in the line of duty, but this, but not for those who have committed suicide. Mm -hmm. And this will be the first for those. Mm -hmm. Um, which will be, I, I mean, I, I hope it still goes forward in some, some mm -hmm. way and um, what will be profoundly moving, as you can imagine. It's not got complete, um, you know, uh, support from everyone yet, mm -hmm. uh, early stages, but, uh, I mean, you've seen this happen before for other first responders. Mm -hmm. There's no question that it will get support. I mean, there's no question because it's so essential um and in fact it was the suicide of a young police officer that that mm -hmm. i think finally pushed the government over the edge into mm -hmm. actually enacting my bill um mm -hmm. and that uh so so just keep your eyes peeled for that happening thank you yeah no absolutely so let's get back to recovery because my fear for some folk is that this is going to be particularly difficult. Are mm -hmm. you also seeing, I know the bright side is we can still connect on Zoom, but I'm thinking of the awarding of chips and all of these things. Yeah. And you mentioned the handshake when you first walk into a yeah. meeting, not to mention the fact that there is this whole group of people out there mm -hmm. who are daytime drinking now, right? Yeah. Who are stuck at home, who are, you know, engaged in activities that aren't necessarily healthy and they're probably engaging in them more because of the isolation. Are you hearing that too? Yes, for sure. And um, it's, a, it's a big concern for a lot of people. In every meeting, virtual meeting that I'm in, someone mentions how their obsession um, or cravings have come back. So, and I, at the very beginning of all of this, started battling with that myself and really needed to do some work with my sponsor and, and make sure and, and reach out to the people that I, I know in the rooms. Um, but yes, the downtime is more there. Like you said, there's more time in the day when you're not occupied with um, like action of doing the 12 steps and your brain, your, your, your addiction mind, it just wants to kick in. There's like a saying that we say in the rooms is that your addiction's always doing push-ups in behind the scenes. It's waiting. It's waiting for you to, you know, just drop your guard a little bit and it's strong and it's ready to come at you. So that is a big thing that people are saying. And it's funny that you talked about the chips too, because I, I even looked into 
love buying an app on how to make stickers. Like you can give like a sticker on, and it's it's really expensive actually to get. I mean, maybe apps. we should maybe we should back it up a little bit, and just for those people who who aren't familiar with twelve steps in the rooms, right, etc., and talk about what are chips. Tell us what are chips, Natalie. Yeah, so we have chips that basically um, celebrate or signify uh, certain steps or stages in recovery. So we have like a twenty-four hour newcomer chip. And they're just like little coins, little medallions. And then you can get one for every month up to a year. And then after a year, you have a celebration. You have a party and you bring your family and you talk about your year of recovery. But every month, it's something to kind of look forward to. And it also is really great because you, 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 know, you get your chip, you walk to the front of the room. It's kind of getting you out of yourself again, accepting that you're in recovery but it's showing the newcomers that recovery works also. So there's a lot of positive reasons why the chips exist. So ha not having them is sad. So one of the very first chats that I did weeks ago, uh, a girl had two months. So I just asked her, you know, can I say congratulations online and um, in, our, in our group? And she said, okay. And it wasn't the same, you know, it's not... It's just not the same because everybody claps in the room when they when you get up and you get your chip because everyone knows how hard it was to get to that point, especially to come for the first time and get your 24-hour chip. So um, you put it in your pocket, like hold it close to your soul. You worked really hard to get there. So that's a missing piece that uh, we haven't figured out how to fix that yet. And another great initiative, I mean, you're... You're such a powerhouse, Natalie Harris. But oh. another great initiative were, has been your recovery cards. Talk about that a little bit because that's so right. cute. Oh my God, I love it. So yeah, I started, again, when I was in recovery myself, uh, something that I noticed was at Homewood, it was such a wonderful feeling. Like I eventually felt like Homewood was my home. I loved it there. But at first I didn't want to be there and people are, are obviously don't. But it, I thought it would be so nice if people would get cards and balloons. Like when you go to the hospital, people say, get well. And lots of times people have family that rally around them and help them through recovery. But more times in my experience is the opposite. So when people are in treatment and they've gotten to the point where they need that help, a lot of times they're on their own and they don't get the support that they need and they're in recovery. So even when I was in recovery, I had support from behind the scenes, but you know, I didn't have a visitor for seven weeks. It was, it's very isolating. And I thought, oh, it would be so nice just to get a card. So years later, here I am, you know, as a city councillor working really hard with the opioid crisis. And I just, I don't even know how it started one day. I reached out to the Berry Fire guys and um, said, are you free? And I went to the dollar store and we, and I've got card supplies and uh, oh, I was talking to, it was the Simcoe Muskoka District Health Unit, that's what it was. I was had, I had a meeting with them about the opioid crisis, and I had mentioned, wouldn't it be nice if we all got cards? And they said, that's a great idea. So anyways, I, I made cards one day with the Barry um, Fire Department, and we put like craft supplies all over the table and glitter and it was amazing. I didn't know what to expect. I'm like, oh my goodness, are they going to think that this is ridiculous? And even, you know, um, just by coincidence, there were, they were all male that day and they, they came up and they were just like loving it and drawing pictures and putting glitter. And, um, 
you know, just thought, thought it was a great idea. And then I posted it online and it just went like wildfire. So I've been really fortunate to make these cards with so many different organizations and politicians and, I, and politicians. <laughs> yeah. I <laughs> yeah. I went to Parliament Hill, MP John Broussard um, and MP Todd Doherty arranged that for me and my friend Heather and I went to Ottawa and made them with uh, we made I think it was almost 80 or more cards so multiple MPs from all parties completely nonpartisan, understanding how important it was and I mailed those across Canada beautiful we just have a couple of minutes left I've been talking to Natalie Harris as you've heard, city councillor, retired Barry, paramedic, author, and recovery uh, expert. I'm just going to use that word because you are. Um, and uh, so, so people are at home, uh, people in recovery are at risk. Uh, just a couple of minutes of what can folk do at those that perhaps are used to the rooms and used to 12 steps and those who aren't but feel like they might have an issue and maybe do need those rooms. What should they do? Well, absolutely um, try the app in the rooms and reach out. If you're part of, if you're, if you're already part of the 12 step community, most likely you'll be aware of the Zoom meetings that exist by now. Um, but if you're not, um, that's kind of a tricky one. So I would still reach out to your, you know, AA or whatever um, group you're affiliated with main um, agency they will probably direct you and give you uh, the numbers for Zoom meetings. Um, you know, reach out to friends that you know that have been in recovery. And, and that's also been happening with me as well, as new people have been reaching out and finding that this is a new thing for them that they're struggling with. Uh, and, and just, you'll, you'll realize once you start talking that there's more support out there than you know. It's, it's getting past the stigma that, you know, you should be ashamed of having and battling with the disease of addiction, but you, because you shouldn't. It's a disease like any other disease, and you deserve help, and you deserve love and support, and um, the first step is just asking for help and saying that you need some help. So, um, yeah, that's what, that would be my biggest, my biggest recommendation is just make that that reach out as much as you can. It's through a virtual screen right now, <laughs> but um, there are people that want to help you. Thank you so much, Natalie Harris, for being on the Radical Reverend Show. Keep safe. Talk Thanks. to you again soon. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. Welcome back to the Radical Reverend Show here, of course, taping remotely. You should all be doing everything remotely in your homes these days. Uh, thank you for joining me out there in listener land. Of course, we're going to be on CIUT 89.5 FM on Monday, 4 to 5, as we always are. But we're also on SoundCloud and we're also on iTunes. So there's a number of ways you can listen to this show. Uh, you just heard us speaking to Natalie Harris, uh, paramedic, author, city councillor in Barrie, 
uh, and also recovery expert about what it means for people in recovery uh, and other things. And we're going to look at all sorts of responses and all sorts of situations that have been affected by the pandemic. And one of them is, of course, uh, some of our larger charitable institutions. And joining me for this section is Judith Slavinsky. She's the National Manager of Corporate Engagement at World Vision in Canada. So welcome, Judith, to the Radical Reverend Show. Thank you, Sherry. Um, and hello to all our listeners. Yes. So you're working from home, of course, like everybody else these days. Uh, mm -hmm. Tell us, you know, normally, pandemic aside, what does your job look like? What do you do for World Vision? Um, on a day-to-day on a -day basis, whether there's a COVID virus uh, or not, um, my small but mighty team uh, is raising funds from uh, corporate Canada and often uh, corporate North America to support our work uh, all over the world in over 100 countries. And what, tell us about that work, because I think, I mean, I'm sure most people have heard of World Vision, but maybe it's kind of back of mind now. Um, maybe they're just not quite aware of where is World Vision in action and what does World Vision do where they are? For sure. Thank you. Um, World Vision has been around for about 70 years. It's the largest uh, charity in Canada and one of the most influential and effective humanitarian organizations in the world. We partner um, around the world with um, community groups, with ch church and faith communities, with governments, very, very importantly. And we also are partnering to get the government of Canada resources out into the field. We have an infrastructure of about 37,000 staff on the ground around the world and about 220,000 uh, community workers around the world, health workers around the world. Uh, and so what happens is most of our workforce uh, comes from the countries that we serve. So they are folks on the ground who live in these countries who are most connected in and who understand the conditions of people around the world and the most vulnerable populations. And just to say most recently, World Vision has begun to concentrate its work and its efforts in the most vulnerable of uh, countries and populations and our COVID response, which is now our first global health response ever. So we've done emergency response work when there's things been things like typhoons and and, uh, and 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 other disasters and emergencies we've now declared a, a global emergency response that's extremely well coordinated by our workforce by our experts on the ground and it's extremely well coordinated with local governments and local uh, community organizations so we're we're on the ground already quite effectively working and now what we're trying to do is overlay our uh, health and response work uh, with the poorest populations with with these extra ways of responding to the to the COVID threat. So, so give us a, an example. You say the the poorest uh, population. So, you know, where is there a, a country that World Vision is on the ground in right now? We are in China, always have been for many, many years. So we were there on the ground when, when the outbreak first occurred. We're in the Philippines, we're in Haiti, we're in Democratic Republic of Congo and many other African countries, uh, 
Kenya, Senegal, South Africa, or in Brazil, or in India, Bangladesh, Afghanistan, Syria, Lebanon, Iraq. Uh, so um, those places that have, uh, so in Myanmar and in, and in Bangladesh with, uh, with um, refugee camps, we have been helping with responding to populations on the move and populations that are displaced. Uh, we're responding on a day-to-day -day basis to places which may be affected by war and long-term. So what we're doing is we're making sure that those populations have sanitation and hygiene. We're, we're drilling wells and delivering fresh water to populations that, uh, that have a lot of diseases due to the lack of fresh water. Um, we're, we're working to ensure that, that children are being educated. Uh, in places like India, um, there are no latrines in the schools. Uh, so the girls don't, typically aren't going to schools, so we're building latrines. Just sort of these very basic and day-to-day -day needs that we're helping to address. And we're, we're primarily um, looking at how, um, whether um, ongoing conditions or exigent, you know, war conditions or um, virus outbreaks, how those are affecting children in particular. So we're estimating that there will be about 30 million children's lives at risk from the COVID virus. And that is not just from the virus itself, but these secondary impacts, which will be sort of an aftershock or an afterwave. So we're trying to always stabilize populations and, and the work we do every day. But when you introduce an, a new threat like COVID, just as Canada is seeing that our lives are completely impacted in every way, shape, and form by this virus in a vulnerable population that we're continually serving at World Vision, those populations are going to be completely devastated. I mean, the impacts will just be absolutely devastating because they have food insecurity, they have um, weak healthcare systems, and they have other um, exigent circumstances like, like displacement of population and war and so on, and, and or extensive um, um, attacks on women and children, uh, like in places like Congo, where it's the rape capital of the world. I mean, it's just unspeakably um, difficult to live for these populations. And now we're introducing a threat, which to Canadians is so um, unspeakably threatening. And now that it's just like a double impact. Um, and one of the things you said, which I, I just want to pick up on, because we think of it and we, we're hearing through our media that, you know, this is a disease that, uh, you know, may, well, not mainly, uh, um, well, yeah, maybe mainly uh, attacks uh, seniors. And you talked about impact on children, on millions of children in, in developing nations. Um, and and the, other, the other issue uh, that I was thinking of as you were speaking is just the lack of being able to test. So we don't know, um, and they don't know who has it, who doesn't. Uh, and I, I'm sure often why people are dying, are they dying of COVID or something else? just the diagnoses and the testing must be a huge challenge. Um, I read somewhere, um, and, and I just want to sort of bounce this off you, that, you know, unless the world really, for example, with Africa, sees Africa um, and understands the plight of Africa generally, and in particular about this, um, we're, we're not going to get rid of this because it'll keep rebounding. Um, because again, nothing not enough is happening on the ground. So, I mean, you, you're in touch, you hear these things. Um, what more can we do? What should our governments be doing? I mean, we've certainly seen south of the border, 
um, a response, a political response saying, we're on our, you know, you're on your own, we're going to hunker down and look after our own, and that's it, you know, pulling out of the World Health Organization. What should our government be doing? What should all governments that have some means be doing right now? Well, sure, you've totally uh, encapsulized the essence of the problem and, and the way that we as humans, as a human family, need to respond. We had a briefing from uh, one of our staff who's overseeing uh, the delivery of programs on the ground and who's keeping in touch with World Vision's response uh, to, to, this, to the virus, uh, to the COVID problem. And her quote, and, and, and I want this to stick in people's minds, is she said, unless we can stop the virus everywhere, we won't stop it anywhere. It doesn't know borders. So for any government to, to think that putting up walls, whether physically or figuratively, or, or policy-wise, putting up walls around their nation is going to protect them. Uh, they're, they're, com they're completely missing it. <laughs> it's, it. It's a foolish thought. So what we know is that this virus will continue to rebound and return if we don't stop it everywhere. So. I've just actually looked at the numbers, uh, Sherry, on online today because our reports at World Vision are already out of date. If they're if they're a week old, they're already out of date. Today's figures say that the coronavirus cases, identified cases, are 1.6 million. Deaths are approaching 100,000 now around the world. And I went into the list of countries um, on this website. It's www.worldometers.info. Coronavirus. Um, and I saw that many of the countries that World Vision is serving, so many of the African countries, for example, they're not reporting very high numbers, but I don't think that's because those high numbers don't exist. I just don't think, as you've said, the testing is happening. They don't have, if we can't get the tests in North America, how can these countries get the tests and the reporting isn't they can't collect stats as readily as we can many of these stats are self-reporting i know that there's some some surveys going on that people can actually self-report that they're collecting in north america at least but we will start to hear about a greater and greater number um, in the more, more vulnerable countries um, we know that the united nations march 25th a couple of weeks ago um, um, announced a kind of a coalition uh, with the, um, the UN Children's Fund, UN Humanitarian, Humanitarian Fund, um, and World Health Organization for a $2 billion coordinated global humanitarian response plan. So that's the UN, and they have their, you know, their, they, they've been working to address these problems well before COVID, um, but, but World Vision has helped with things like the Zika virus um, and other viruses that have impacted over over um, other you know decades past and what we know is that the secondary impacts of uh, things like uh, Zika and Ebola in past um, uh, outbreaks are informing our predictions of what will happen with COVID and so what we mean when we say the, the 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 secondary aftershocks is that other deadly diseases, um, because there's a lack of immunization, um, there will be other deadly diseases that will come in, and because the healthcare system in any country, whether North America or, or abroad, 
because our healthcare systems are overloaded and are, are being rocked by the COVID uh, virus, the other things that come up on a regular basis, like malaria, like malnutrition, um, like, um, you know, the things that affect infant mortality, um, mothers being, you know, unhealthy and so on, all of those problems will become compounded because of the, of the, the massive um, pressure on the healthcare systems. The pandemic will lead to catastrophic mortality for children due to the initial virus and due to the aftershocks. If children's parents are dying en masse, just as when the AIDS crisis hit Africa, we're going to be seeing the same thing where if, if, the, if the older folks, and it isn't just the seniors, but people in the middle years are dying, what will happen to, happen to the children? They're just, they're just is not the social safety net. There just are not um, the kinds of supports in place if children are losing their, their, their parents. So all of that really speaks to every age group being vulnerable and some populations being even more vulnerable. And these are populations that don't have food security in the first place. They don't have access, ready access to nutrition in the first place. And so if you're if, if, if your, your older sister or your mom can't go fetch water or can't go to the market and get food, if social isolation is keeping you in a place that isn't equipped adequately in the first place, you can well imagine just what the ramifications of that are. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to figure out on a daily basis with, with my son how to keep our fridge full, and we've got delivery up to our doorstep uh, here in Toronto in our apartment. So... I, I almost want to cry when I say that, when I'm actually talking about other populations who can't even get a glass of clean water. I'm washing my hands 20 times a day, and it's coming out of the tap nice and warm, and I have soap, right? And I'm complaining that I might not be able to get uh, access to Purell, but I have running water. Uh, the next population, my sisters in, in, in um, the Democratic Republic of Congo can't get access to clean water on a good day, let alone when, co when COVID is here. And we are speaking, by the way, here on the Radical Reverend Show to Judith Slavinsky. She's the national manager of corporate engagement uh, for World Vision Canada. And uh, we're talking about, of course, the impact beyond our borders here uh, and what we need to do about it. Uh, Judith, I love that quote that unless we get rid of COVID everywhere, we don't get rid of COVID anywhere. Anywhere. Uh, I mean, it'll, it, it, the second wave or the third wave will keep coming back unless we start looking at the world as sisters, brothers, and others, and not just at ourselves, as ourselves. I want to talk about you for a moment because oh. <laughs> uh, you are a lawyer by trade. How does a lawyer coming out of Winnipeg shift into working for World Vision? Tell us a little bit about that journey. <laughs> Oh, that's interesting. Well, I um I practiced law for about seven years, and I served as a, a in my latter part of that short career in law as a magistrate of the provincial court, and in a place like Winnipeg. Um, our population is a little bit of a different mix than it is here in downtown Toronto. Uh, there's a very high population of Indigenous uh, folks in, in uh, Manitoba in the West, in, in, in Manitoba and, and in Saskatchewan. Um, so I was blessed with uh, um, being in the midst of a very diverse population there. But what I found was they were disproportionately represented in our court system. No surprise, we all know that. Um, and that's, a, that's very tragic. But um, it, it gave my first taste of disadvantaged populations, of populations who were discriminated against broadly, of women, 
um, who were suffering uh, all kinds of um, 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 disadvantages. And, and so that gave me a kind of a mission, I think, uh, to look at the world's um, and Canada's disadvantaged populations and to try to make a difference. So I started to do a little bit of uh, volunteer work um, for something called Peace Days, which is a two-week uh, two festival of, of peace and social justice in Winnipeg. And we did actually have uh, many uh, activities with our Indigenous brothers and sisters, as well as with many other uh, new Canadian populations and others and just talking about various elements of peace building so when I came to, to Toronto three years ago without a job with my young son my 18 year old son and we moved here um, I had a connection with World Vision and uh, began to work with them in January of 18 and so now have uh, have um, uh, celebrated my second anniversary there and I'm getting more and more involved with crisis response when you consider that we're raising funds now for the COVID virus response. We have a campaign, um, World Vision has a, a worldwide campaign um, of um, uh, 20, I'm sorry, $80 million across uh, all of our fundraising uh, offices across the world. And um, and so my, my office is raising a portion of that and my small but mighty team uh, really got on the ground with that uh, this week. And I would say, um, my experience in the corporate sector, uh, whether as a lawyer or as a fundraiser in the arts in Winnipeg, has prepared me well <laughs> for this current challenge. Well, and we're glad you're doing it. Uh, you, you mentioned, uh, it, you know, some populations, of course, even within our midst, um, being affected and more vulnerable by whatever is happening in the world. Um, one of those groups is women. And I was lucky enough to go to one of the events you hosted around women in the world. And I just want to talk you know, talk a little bit about World Vision and, and what it, how it works with women and why women are such a kind of prime community, if you will, um, for focus. Thank you. Uh, yes, World Vision um, in its entire history has worked to address challenges in the lives of women uh, and their children. Uh, so that's been part of our history from the beginning. But I would say that recently we've recognized the need to double down on those efforts and to increasingly focus on improving conditions for women around the world. And, and it is a several pronged approach that that runs the gamut from their basic needs for clean water to maternal and child health to education um, and and education safely and education throughout their lives and all the opportunities that we like that we enjoy here in North America um, to um, entrepreneurship and the ability to make a living so throughout a, a, a girl's a child and girls and woman's life cycle we're looking at all of those uh, issues we're also looking at extraordinary vulnerability in in terms of things like um, uh, human trafficking which goes on in Canada as well but it goes on all in places all over the world including um, shamefully uh, tourist places um, fueled by North American tourists um, we also look at things like um, sexual assault and sexual violence a place like the Democratic Republic of Congo is considered the rape capital of the world as I mentioned and we are there trying to address and support um, medical, uh, psychosocial, uh, and legal uh, uh, issues surrounding the vulnerability of women who are systematically 
uh, attacked, systematically victimized by whole regimes um, in ways that governments are turning a blind eye to or in ways that there are not sufficient uh, supports within the community to stop those practices. So, um, and World Vision, um, uh, by its nature, has set up programming by collaborating with the communities themselves, whether that's collaborating at a, at a, at a in the way that the communities are organized or through a, a faith communities or through governments, we have a several-pronged approach in terms of um, establishing collaborative relationships on the ground to deliver services. So we do not go into a community and say, a, we're going to deliver the word of God to you and, and, and our relief to you is, is conditional on that and you accepting our dogma. We do not do that. We work everywhere in the world amongst every population, amongst every faith tradition or no faith tradition. And we say that we're going to deliver up programs in, a, in ways that, that suit your community, the way it's organized, that recognizes the power structures and recognizes the, the social mores and the philosophies. We'd like to work to change some of them where women are systematically uh, victimized or, or um, subjected to regimes that are, that are con uh, where equality does not flourish. We want to seek to change those, but we do realize we need to work within the communities that we're seeking to serve in the ways that work best with and for them. Um, again, speaking to Judith Slavinsky here on the Radical Reverend Show, a national manager of corporate engagement for World Vision in Canada. And we're talking about the work that World Vision does. Um, and, and really, um, you know, just with you, Judith, doing a little bit of brainstorming around, first of all, the, what COVID is doing outside of our borders, because one of the, one of the things that I think we tend to do as humans <laughs> is kind of when, when we're afraid, um, and we sort of start looking, being internal more, looking at our own needs more than, than generosity sometimes. Sometimes we look at, you know, oh, it's in my fridge and maybe I should stockpile everything from toilet paper to our incomes um, because who knows what the future will, will bring. And we know that a lot of Canadians are out of work now and a lot of Canadians are getting assistance themselves. So my real um, concern is that charities like World Vision, um, that groups that do outreach in the world, uh, necessary work, um, uh, you know, NGOs of various sorts, uh, are going to start to feel, feel this as well, are going to start to feel the lack of givings. You're in a role where it's your job to look at givings. What are you noticing? Um, are people pulling back or are they getting more generous? That's a, that's a great question, Sherry. Um, and you're asking me the question today, and I can give you a response today, but I do believe that things are changing. Um, and I think they're, they're, they're changing for, for, for both the better and the worse. I mean, we're, so on a macro level, um, we are seeing um, worrying trends in other governments, governments to the south of us, a government to the south of us, where, where there's a closing down and a protectiveness and a reactiveness out of fear. Um, but I think this is an opportunity for us as individuals and us as governments to reach out in, in unprecedented ways to our human family and to the global community. I think it's possibly the first time 
in, in some of our generations who haven't lived through world wars, where we under, are beginning to understand the interconnectedness of the human family in ways that have not been brought home to us like ever before. Um, what we are seeing on more of a micro level in terms of the donors to our own NGO are probably three things. Some folks who are losing their jobs and are, who are in unprecedentedly difficult um, circumstances themselves. So if I were to lose my job tomorrow, I'm not sure I would continue, you know, my charitable giving in the same way. I would have to look at every dollar and worry about every dollar. So I think those folks who are facing those kind of um, emergency search situations for themselves and their children and families are probably um, deciding not to, not to give where they normally would give. And those of us who are keeping our jobs, I think most of us are, are continuing on with our charitable giving and may be able to be um, uh, uh, shown the, the benefit of, of giving even more or channeling our giving in a way that's both uh, here at home, maybe we're sewing masks, maybe we're, 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 we're uh, volunteering in some ways here at home or giving more money, but also that, that our dollars can be channeled uh, abroad in the ways that I've been advocating, um, which, will, which will certainly bounce back to all of us. Um, and then there's the third thing that I see happening, and that is that um, um, both governments and uh, the corporate community are stepping up Millions and millions of dollars have been announced in recent weeks by Canada's largest corporations, I'm pleased to, uh, to, to, to tell you, um, to address um, issues both at home and abroad for COVID. I would say the first responses by our corporate community and by our government have been at home. Um, no surprise, and I think it's important to stabilize our community and give our community confidence. But there, increasingly now, we're seeing a shift of the of both, you know, our prime minister's rhetoric and our corporate community's response to recognize the problems that need to be addressed urgently uh, abroad in order to uh, avoid an absolute um, devastating, uh, um, you know, result of the virus. So, um, so I, I would say that's where I feel things are at right now, Sherry, but I hope that in a week or two weeks, I can report that there's an even larger trend toward recognizing the need to give um, abroad. And I can say if, if folks would like um, to be able to, to, to give, uh, worldvision.ca has on its homepage uh, a very quick and easy um, um, you know, uh, a structure set up for donations of any size. And you can get that on your, whether it's on mobile or online, worldvision.ca is, is well set up to receive uh, donations. And what happens is we, we pool resources and channel them to the areas most needed. We have the ability to do that. I, I sometimes with with smaller organizations, um, their responses are a little more um, um, specific and isolated. Whereas we have the opportunity with World Vision because of our size and scale and scope and our on the ground influence. Currently, we have the ability to mobilize resources really quickly and effectively to the most needed areas. Speaking again on the Radical Reverend Show, and thank you out there in listener land to tune in to Judith Slavinsky um, with World Vision Canada, uh, talking about, you know, you know, those NGOs at work, you know, um, around the world to do in, 
increasingly valuable work. And of course, the demands are even greater during a pandemic, not less. So um, just really an appeal, uh, you know, wherever you give, you know, whoever you give to, keep giving. If you've got a job, you're one of the lucky ones. Um, keep uh, even, be even more generous because in a sense, we're making up for those who can't be right now at home. Um, Judith, thank you so much for being on the Radical Reverend Show. We're at the end of our time. Uh, do please tune in to us on iTunes and SoundCloud and do stay tuned to the next week of the Radical Reverend. We'll keep you up to date on what's happening from a slightly different vantage point than you might hear in other places. Till then, take care, be safe.